HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. This is a message from Canal House Cooking. Canal House Cooking presents the first annual Small Holding Festival with the Kitchen Potager at Linden Hill Gardens and Schwartz Brand Studio, honoring the One Block Feast by Margot True and her co-authors from Sunset Magazine. Pull together your locavore spirit, your DIY sensibilities, and a carload of friends and family, and join us for the first annual Small Holding Festival, Saturday, July 9th, 2011, from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. at Linden Hill Gardens in beautiful Bucks County, Pennsylvania. A small holding offers its owners the pleasure of backyard self-sufficiency through the raising of animals and the growing of fruits and vegetables. The Small Holding Festival will be a day of learning devoted to becoming self-sufficient in your own backyard, garden, and kitchen. Visit our website to buy discounted tickets at www.thesmallholdingfestival.com. It's one o'clock on Thursday, and you know what that means? Another episode of the Farm Report coming to you live from the Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and I am on the line with Margot Brooks of Wayward Goose Farm. Margot, how are you? Hi, Erin. I'm good. How are you? Good, good. I'm so glad you could join us today. I'm really excited to tuck into your your story. I, I know the farm that uh, your your current farm is is Wayward Goose Farm, but I want to kind of spin the wheels of time backwards and head back uh, to the farm and talk, start by talking a little bit about the farm you grew up on, which was Brooksvale mm-hmm. Farm, um, and, and that's in New York State. It was upstate New York, right? Yep, that's correct. It was in um, central New York State near Cooperstown. Um, it's a fifth-generation family farm, close to 900 acres, and it was a um, conventional dairy in the sense that they were milking about 100 cows and shipping milk um, to Agrimark, which is the um, conglomeration that makes uh, Cabot cheese. So. Okay, awesome. And that's kind of the, the, the status 
quo for for New York State dairy farmers working with Agrimart. So so that means basically they concentrate uh, on farming and milking the animals, and Agrimart comes, picks up the milk once a day, and takes it back to to do some fluid milk and mm-hmm. to make cabbage cheese. And so how many how many cows were you milking on the farm when you were growing up? Um, it was close to a hundred. Um, it was always you know right around that number. Sometimes the number varies because some cows are dry and um, so, but we always use the number 100. Um, So it was a, you know, we call it a conventional dairy because that's kind of the term, but it was non-conventional in the sense that the cows were all pastured um, and they, they were milked in a tie stall barn, which means they come into the barn for milking and they get tied into stalls and they're milked on a pipe pipeline that takes the milk um to the milk house in the bulk tank so the tie stall what is what's the other the other option would be to have them kind of come into a a parlor is that right yes that's right Mm -hmm. and so the difference being that the the cows kind of get milked am i understanding this right the cows kind of get milked where they're at versus kind of all walking through like a designated milking area yep Mm -hmm. awesome and so i mean did you have did you have the upbringing of uh, the like a traditional you know New York State dairy girl where did did your family do you know planting its own crops and harvesting hay and and all that I mean were you pretty involved in the farm growing up or were were you kind of like no dad I'm I'm not into this and kind of mm-hmm. doing your own thing No I was pretty involved actually um yep we did grow our own crops so we grew our own corn and we made all our own hay um and I was very involved. That was always my summer job was uh, helping on the farm, unloading hay, and um, I would help my dad milk on on weekends. And um, it was also my sort of after-school job was uh, going down to the barn and helping do chores, so feeding calves or uh, feeding out hay while the cows were milking. Um, yeah, I, I was always involved. I really liked working with my dad and uh, just being around the animals and in the barn. Yeah, so, and the farm, you know, was co-owned by your father and your father's brother, right? But like you said it earlier, it's been in the family for five generations? Yep, yep. My dad and his brother are the fifth generation, were the fifth generation to, to farm there. And, um, and yeah, it's... Cool. So, so you, you graduate from high school, you've been, you know, working in the summers and working part-time on your family farm. Did you, did you consider just staying on and becoming a dairy farmer or, or what kind of direction did you take uh, at the end of your high school years? Uh, Well, growing up, like in elementary school, I always said I wanted to be a farmer. Uh, And then, and then that idea kind of changed as I got older, mostly because it seemed like I should, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't enough to just be a farmer. I should, do, I should be a vet or something like that. Um, not necessarily because my parents made me feel that way, but maybe my classmates somehow made me feel that way. Okay. Um, so I always, so my idea of what I wanted to be kind of changed, but it was always associated with uh, farming in a way. I, I wanted to be a vet for a while and then, I went to college at St. Lawrence University and um, majored in biology, and I changed from wanting to be a vet to just wanting to 
be a biologist, sort of conservation biologist. And um, then it was my senior year at St. Lawrence that I really realized that I wanted to be in agriculture. Um, and, and so did, that's when I became focused on that idea more. Did something shift for you that year? I mean, you know, you, you kind of... I, we have a lot of young farmers on the show, and I think a lot of people are really interested in getting into egg who have, you know, really no background in it and have never kind of spent time on a farm uh, of any sorts, much less a dairy farm. I mean, you're really coming at it from this alternate perspective in that you're, you grew up on a farm, you're also a woman, you know, you kind of gotten away from this idea uh, of working in agriculture. So did something shift that senior year? I mean, did you just get kind of like homesick for the lifestyle or did you you know read some kind of seminal book where you're like man this is really where it's at I mean or did it just kind of you know shift um yeah there was a shift um I I studied abroad the first semester of my senior year in Ghana uh which it's you know a third world country but I what I realized being there is that I would have to go to the the market down the road and get my food and I realized that Really, I was eating very locally there. The, most of the food that was at the market was coming from right around the area. It was very fresh um, vegetables and fruits, and I just thought that that I just thought that that was great. You know, the farm I grew up on was was a conventional dairy, so the, the thing that they were producing was being kind of produced there, but then shipped off and, on a big truck along with every other farm's milk around there, and um, the end product wasn't really something that was that was tangible. It didn't really, like the cabbage cheese or whatever, it didn't feel like it was something that was... Came that from was your ours. farm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I just started getting interested when I was in Ghana with um, producing actual food that that you could eat. Yeah, <laughs> so where you get to see it from start to finish. Yeah, exactly. And then um, I came back to St. Lawrence for my second semester of senior year, and I was in a conservation biology class that was just um, a really great class. And just learning about conservation and environmental stewardship, I realized, and then, you know, returning home on breaks and seeing this huge um, acreage of land that had been in the family for generations, uh, it just really inspired me to... um, to want to go back there and do something different different with the farm and kind of diversify it a little and, um, you know, be an environmental steward that way instead of what I had planned on doing, which was being a conservation biologist and kind of doing research-based stuff, was just to go back and um, be able to put my conservation biology ideas into motion on a farm. On a farm. And, you know, no small farm at that. I mean, you said at the beginning of the show you were looking at 900 acres. So what kind of diversification diversification were you were you thinking about? Um, well, I was kind of picturing something more like what my great-grandfather had done, which was a smaller dairy, so scaling back the size of the actual dairy farm and kind of doing some different things. There was an old apple orchard on the farm that had kind of fallen by the wayside over the years as just the dairy scaled up and kind of took over. And it was, you know, what hadn't been managed in years, but all the trees were still there. And I know my my grandfather, when I was little, used to have honeybees, and the honeybees had kind of 
had fallen by the wayside and there were no honeybees anymore. And we used to have sheep when I was very young and we had, you know, did the fibers and just all these things that used to be on the farm that had just kind of faded out as the dairy grew and took over because that was the direction the farm had to go in to support more families and yeah i I think that i mean that sounds like the story uh of new york dairy farmers in general is kind of moving from this smaller scale more diverse operation to to growing and you know your farm you know the the farm you grew up on milking 100 cows i know that's that's about the average size of a dairy farm in in new york state you know there are some bigger farms that are mark you know milking five you know 500 to a thousand cows but but in new york 100 is really the average which is a lot different than like Colorado or or California where you have thousands and thousands of cows on a on a single space so it's interesting like hearing you talk about this how like your life experience and like the history of your family has really just mirrored all the things that we hear about all the time that have been happening to farmers and and you kind of looking to make that that return to the farm and and sussing out like how do we make a living in by through diversification like is there is there a role for that? So what did you find out? Um, well, it was kind of a difficult um, thing to go back to my family's farm and have that conversation with my father and his brother. Um, my dad's very easy to talk to, and I always was able to have these conversations with him. But um, old farming families are kind of, I, I don't want to generalize, but this farming family anyway was... Uh, very, they had a hard time communicating with each other. Um, you know, they all lived within a mile of each other and worked together on a daily basis. But um, talking about really big issues like this was hard for them. So um, that was a kind of struggle to have that conversation. But um, and it just ended up that it wasn't it wasn't going to work the way I had <laughs> dreamed it to work, uh, to be. Um, there were just different ideas about the way the direction that the farm should take. And so, so it, it just happened that it, it was going to work out better to, to split up the, far, the LLC, and my dad decided to um, sell his half of the business, the farm, the land, um, to his brother. So it's still being farmed by my uncle. Wow. But my, my parents have moved, now moved to the farm they're currently on, which uh, is called Wayward Goose Farm, and it's... A smaller farm in Vermont, and they're now milking um, close to 20 Jersey cows. And I'm actually not working here with them, but I get to I get to work with them on a daily basis because they're partners with the farm that I work on, Consider Barbell Farm, which is right next door. The land actually is adjoining. So oh wow! Just, yeah. Well, so I want to talk more into kind of how that relationship worked we're going to take a quick break and we come back we'll talk about how you found yourself at consider bardwell okay
following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Join Linda Palaccio for a taste of the past every Thursday at 12 p.m. as she indulges her curiosities about food, cooking, drinking, and dining of the past by taking a journey through culinary history. Linda interviews authors, scholars, friends, and chroniclers to learn about what was eaten, where, and how, from as long ago as ancient Mesopotamia and Rome, right up to the grazing tables and deli counters of today. The show underscores food as a lively link between present and past cultures. Again, that's Thursday at 12 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. Okay, we're back. You are tuned into the Farm Report, and we are on the line with Margot Brooks of a new farm, Wayward Goose Farm, kind of in addition to consider Bardwell. So, Margot, let's back up. You graduated from college, and you had kind of made this decision that you wanted to get back into farming, kind of sussed out your dad and your dad's brother who who own who owned the farm um, Brooksvale farm that you grew up on but do you spend a little bit of time kind of post college learning about some other stuff with regards to dairy right um yes i did i uh after graduating i i had realized that i wanted to um get into agriculture and in my idea you know as i had mentioned was to go back to to my family's farm, and I thought a good way to um, to have a viable farm operation there that could support another family, you know, me, um, was to make a value-added product. And I thought that cheese would be would be a great one. I had grown up; I always had a few goats of my own growing up, and I would make fresh chev and with my mom just in the kitchen. And so I I really you know liked cheese making and or what I knew of it. And so I just kind of went online and started emailing different small farmstead cheese operations that I could find anywhere all over the Northeast. And um, I just perfectly worked out that I emailed one farm in particular at the right moment, and that was Consider Bardwell Farm. And they had just lost their cheese maker um, and just needed, needed one. So I came for an interview and was hired. That was in 2008. Wow, how serendipitous! So, tell us a little bit about Consider Bardwell. What what type of cheeses are you are you um, making, and where's the milk coming from? Uh, at Consider Bardwell, we make goat and cow's milk cheeses, and they're mostly raw milk cheeses. But we do make one fresh goat's milk cheese that's pasteurized. Uh, so, at the farm, we milk uh, close to eighty. Oberhasley goats, and that's the the goat milk. We also buy a little bit of goat's milk from another farm uh, nearby, and we're um, at Consider Bardwell. We're partner farms with Wayward Goose Farm, which is where my parents are now. Yeah, and they're milking. <laughs> yay, they're milking um, Jersey cows, and we're also. Um, getting some cow's milk from another farm nearby called the Larson Farm, I think it's called. Um, And they're also milking Jersey cows. So we're making both cow and goat's milk cheeses, mostly raw cheeses. And they're all cave age. So we have um, four caves at Consider Bardwell Farm where we we age the cheeses. 
Awesome. So I know we've had Angela Miller, who's one of the co-owners of Consider Barbell Farm, on the show in the past, in addition to the main course. So definitely uh, listeners can tune into either of those programs to learn more about Consider Bardwell. Um, so you spent some time making cheeses, but then made a transition from cheeses to what you're doing currently, correct? Yes, that's correct. I, I worked in the, che- the creamery for two years. Um, it was last spring that I actually phased out of the creamery and um, onto the farm side of things. I, you know, I realized working in the creamery was great. I loved making the cheese and having that connection to the to the end product. You know, um, but my intention had always been to to learn how to make cheese to be able to farm and make a living farming. So I really missed. Um, the animal aspect of things, and you know, being able to work outside and and have that that side of things. So I I transitioned out into the farm, and uh, my boyfriend Alex and I now co-manage the farm of Consider Bridal Farm. So we're we're in charge of all the animal husbandry stuff and the um, crop work, which the only crop we produce is hay. So we're we're making all the hay for the goats. Sounds like you guys are living the young farmer dream up there. I mean, is it as dreamy as as it sounds? Or, I mean, give us a little reality so we don't feel so bad as we sweat it out down in, in, in this concrete <laughs> jungle here. <laughs> um, it is dreamy in the sense that, you know, we get to work outside all the time and, and we're, we're able to um, be together working, but it it definitely isn't as romantic as many people think it to be uh you know they're they're just especially this summer it feels like we're we're just constantly putting out fires in order to get anything done you know there are just times on a farm where it feels like everything's going wrong and um this summer in particular (laughs) feels that way so anytime we're you know trying to get on a tractor to go mow some hay the tractor tire is flat and then we have to uh you know Make a mil- run around in a million directions, trying to to put out fires in order to get anything done. Which I think that every farm just has these little uh, spells like this. But um, but it is great being able to work together and be outside and be with the animals is it's really rewarding. Yeah, and you guys are taking part. You know, um, I also work with Heritage Foods USA, and so I know that you guys are also partnering with us for the No Go Left Behind project that we're going to be be launching in October, and 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 that's a project where we're basically looking at at male dairy goats because on a dairy farm there's really no use for a male. So, um, you know, the idea of this project is to kind of create a marketplace. We're partnering with some of our chefs in the city and and male customers across the U.S. to see if we can create a marketplace for, for male goats. But what, um, I mean, what in the past, you guys are kidding once a year at the farm or? Yep, we're kidding once a year. We usually have our goats um, kid or freshen in the early spring. So this year we started right at the end of February and we continued through March and into the beginning of April with our kidding season. Um, and we had about... 160 babies this year. Wow. <laughs> yep. I have to say and baby goats are so cute. They let you hold them and you can 
bottle pinta. I, you know, I guess like some of that novelty wears off when you're like literally spending your nights in the kidding barn, I'm sure. Um, but I definitely always loved visiting during kidding time. Yeah, no, kidding is, is great. And every year without fail, we get super excited about kidding and we, you know, we wait for those first babies with bated breath, but um, it does actually wear off after, you know, the first hundred babies. And, and especially <laughs> as they get older, because baby goats, especially bottle-fed, hand-reared baby goats, are incredibly annoying in the sense that they're very needy. They, you know, they want you to be with them all the time. And when you get in a pen with them, they jump all over you. So I'm always covered in muddy hoof prints and... Uh, and they're just screaming at you whenever you go near nearby, and they always need something. It they seems like, like just... you're like the octo mom, but with like you know ten <laughs> times as many babies. So, yes. <laughs> so goats usually have twins, right? And the the male to female ratio somewhere around fifty fifty. Is that? Yep, that's that's right. They typically have um, they typically have twins. They can have one, and they can have our goat, our breed anyway has can have up to three. I know the Nubians can have as many as five, but we've never seen more than three here. Wow. Wow. So, so you and Alex are, are co-managing the, the goat herd at Consider Barrel. Your parents have undergone this huge move um, from New York to Vermont, from, you know, a family farm that's been in the, been in the family for five generations to a brand new farm, um, also scaling way back down to, uh, you know, t- milking 20 head in- instead of 100. What is the what is the plan for the future? I mean, do you see your lives melding or is this partnership going to grow in some way or is it all still a little unclear? I know it's pretty new. So, yeah, it's definitely new. Um, I think the future holds a lot of joint. What, what we pictured with um with them moving in next door, and literally, as I said before, the the land is, you know, conjoining. It's, it's there are neighbors, really, our neighbors, and um, so we we are on a daily basis just co-operating in the sense that um, we've we're sharing equipment, we're sharing labor, and we're also sharing land. So. Um, some of the land that is on Wayward Goose Farm is better suited pasture for, for goats. So we're actually um, pasturing all the meat kids that we're raising for No Goat Left Behind on Wayward Goose Farm. It's, you know, it's a rocky, ledgy area with lots of brush and honeysuckle, and um, the goats just love that. And it's not so great for cows. They, they're more... Um, grazers and goats are more browsers so it's perfect for for the goats and and consider bardwell farm has a lot of its flat river valley um grassland which is great grazing space for cows so we're gonna um wayward goose farm is going to be able to graze their cows on consider bardwell farm so we're we're sharing land um and we're sharing equipment and, and labor. If there's a big project that's going on at Wayward Goose Farm and more hands are needed, then Alex and I will come lend a hand with that and vice versa. If we have something big going on at Consider Barbell Farm, we need help with that. Um, my father's over there in a heartbeat to help us. And it's really great. That's kind of the, an old model that, that hasn't been in practice in the past hundred years, but small farms in the past used to, to cooperate all the time. And um, it's been really great. 
Wow. So it sounds like you have kind of fallen into this really beautiful uh, relationship between, you know, your desire to be working on a farm and kind of commingling this diversification uh, role and then also being next to your family and, and kind of all these things really seem to fall in place. I mean, no doubt after years of kind of hard work and planning and flexibility on your part and your parents and, of course, um, the crew over at Consider Bardwell, what would you say, I mean, if anything, advice to, to people who are interested in getting into farming or advice to people who want to become cheesemakers? I mean, were there any resources, whether they're organizations or books, um, that, that you found really helpful or inspirational? I mean, I know it can feel... Uh, pretty intimidating to be, you know, looking at buying a new dairy farm or any farm for that matter. So, I mean, how did you kind of mitigate some of that, you know, uh, surge? Uh, well, I, I found the most helpful thing was just, um, you know, putting yourself out there. It can feel really vulnerable sometimes to to just go up to to a farmer and ask him questions and pick their brain. And um, farmers, especially old, you know, dairy farmers aren't sometimes the easiest to talk to, but, um, and sometimes they're, they're not, you know, they don't really want to share information, but, but some do and some are very helpful. And I think especially if, if you're looking at a certain area that you're new in and you don't, you don't know the local businesses that you're going to have to deal with. You don't know where the best place is to go get a tire repaired or something like that. It's just the easiest way to find out, and the best way to find out is just by talking to local, other local farmers that are doing it every day and have been possibly for generations, and they just have, they have the best knowledge of the area and you know, the weather, everything. So um, that's what, what we've done a lot is just, you know, tried to get in with the local local farm population and um, be able to talk to them and, and ask them questions and use them as resources. That's great. That's awesome. Well, we're going to wrap up, but I have one more question before we do. What What's up with the name, Wayward Goose Farm? Where did that come from? <laughs> well, it's kind of a funny and, and very strange story. Um, there was one day last fall where Alex and I were out on the farm, Consider Bardwell, and um, we heard a strange noise and uh, turned around and there was this goose waddling up behind us and it was this a very odd-looking goose. It, um, it turns out it's actually an African brown goose and if you look them up online, they're very strange-looking. They have kind of this flap of skin under their neck and... Um, just odd looking, but he was just waddle, waddling up behind us, and he was very friendly. He let Alex pick him up, and we didn't know where he came from, and we brought him back to uh, Consider Bardwell, and to, there's a pond there. We put him on the pond, and he just seemed very out of place, and it turns out he was blind and 20 years old, and he actually came from the farm next door, uh, and so we, when we returned him to the farm next door, the owner of, the, of this property said, yeah, I'm you know, in, in talking to him, said he was selling the place or wanted to sell the place. And at that point, my parents were looking all over the place for for a farm property. Um, and so that's how, oddly enough, that's how they found this farm, and that's how they happened to buy it. And the farm came with this goose whose name is Oscar. Wow. So um, they decided to name the, the farm after him. So it's called Wayward Goose Farm. <laughs> 
that I mean, I tell you, I'm mean, like have chills right now. I mean, that's kind of like one of those stories where it's just meant to be. Yeah. <laughs> well, Margot, thanks so much for joining us today. It was great to have you on. Um, people can find out more about Consider Bardwell Farms by visiting their website, www.considerbardwellfarm.com. Their cheeses are available at a bunch of really fine uh, retailers here in New York City, as well as the New York City Green Market. So I encourage people to um, pop out. Uh, the Dorset, I think, is my favorite. Margo, what would you say is your favorite? Well, because I'm so connected to the goat's milk, I have to pick a goat cheese, and I really love the Manchester. Awesome. So thanks again, and tune in next week on the Farm Report, 1 o'clock, Thursdays. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. It's with great sadness that we mourn the loss of Ray Dieter owner of the DBA Bars and co-host of Beer Sessions Radio. Ray made this studio brighter every Tuesday at 5 p.m. with his larger-than-life personality, charm, wit, charisma, and expertise. We hope the archives of Ray on our station will serve as some kind of window into the life of a man who meant so much to those he knew and those he didn't know. And on behalf of everybody here at Heritage Radio Network, we thank you, Ray. Um, And they've been doing that for many, many years. And how did they get that? That barrel of beer. Um, did you ever hear of a place called Beer Mountain? Where's I have that? not, actually. Beer Mountain is a place that I climb every once in a while to find barrels of beer um, for my customers. I go up there. I wear big, heavy boots. I carry a sled with me because there's snow and ice. And, uh, <laughs> and I go to the top of the mountain, and I bring back barrels and bottles of beer for the people at my bars. And that's, that's where I got it from, Beer Mountain. You're awesome, Ray. It's better for growing things. There's just more rain and more, more regular temperatures, not as harsh a winter. Sure. So it just became more economically viable to grow it there. Can I just make a statement? I want to apologize to everybody that asked me why hops weren't grown in New York State, because I've told everybody there was a hop light. <laughs> <laughs> I just pulled that out of my ass. So why did you open a bar? in New Orleans? Well, <laughs> everybody asks that question. The basic reason I opened a bar in New Orleans, um, down there, um, the, a, a bit, well, obviously, it's a drinking town. There's a lot of drinking town. It's also a culinary town. They have some of the best restaurants in the country down there, and uh, people told us we were crazy, bringing a good beer, good whiskey, good drinking concept down to New Orleans, because all the people wanted was, you know, huge-ass buds. And that's all well and fine, and, and there's a lot of fun to be had on Bourbon Street, but there's a lot of shit going on down there away from Bourbon Street. And uh, we opened up DBA in 2000, and uh, we had a, a slow beginning because we had a, a pretty good list, and people were like kind of intimidated. But once the restaurant people, the, the, the chefs, the, the service people in the restaurant industry kind of got wind that we were down there, and we had a great beer selection, we... We got filled up pretty fast. I mean, it worked out real well. And we opened our second place called Mimi's down there. And another aspect about it is down there, you know, a bar owner is 
a respected member of the community. We, we pay our taxes, we, we employ people, and we're part of the whole trade industry down there, the whole um, tourist industry. In New York City, we're not treated quite the same, and you know that as well as I speak. We're kind of treated as a... Uh, we're not a respected member of the business community as bar owners, necessarily. So you like New Orleans. I love New Orleans. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio. Ray Dieter, a.k.a. Bootsy Collins, was just on the air. Ray, what was it like in the old days? Did you have a band or something? Bootsy Collins, Ray Dieter, DBA. I, I, I play guitar a little bit, but uh, yeah, it was kind of boring. The beer business is a lot more fun, Jimmy. You're just too cool, man. I love you, man. <laughs> Ray, tell us the Tom Peters story. I know you've known him for years. Yeah, you know, I have known him for years, and all the stories that I have about Tom, I cannot tell you on the radio. How about a general beer theme story, like <laughs> okay, the I first you. time you met him? How about that? Okay. The first time I met Tom, he was running a bar in Philadelphia called... Um, Copa 2. Copa 2. Copa 2, right. And uh, he was... I, I went down there. DBA was a brand new bar we went down there and uh, he was one of the most generous wonderful guys he's like oh, DBA I love you guys like how did he hear about us I have no idea but he knew who we were and he treated us like kings and uh, free food free drinks so generous and then I found out that he didn't own the place <laughs> so it's like oh that makes a lot of sense now um, if anyone's offering a course like that it's a scam it's, it's, it's <laughs> absolutely I took a course at NYU about opening a bar and it was just a fallacy it was just ridiculous they, they have no idea um, they have, it's, it's all about math too and, and the math they talk about is really fun but it's really not pertinent to what you do on a day-to-day living um, yeah, we need beer. Can somebody right. open some beer? Right, up? I'm all over this. Give me a minute. Give me a My bottle. My glass is empty. <laughs> this is the first show we haven't been drinking beer nonstop. Right. Hey, Ray, how are you? How was your weekend? Uh, you know, my New Year's was fine. Uh, I made a few bad choices, but you're supposed to. Um, that's just what it is. New Year's is about making bad decisions. Um, and I did that. But it, all in all, okay, I, I lived through it. Like you say, we're the only brewery in the world. We have wooden oak casks. So yeah, 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 yeah. When are we going to get some keys? Well, well, I mean, that's, I mean that's, that's, that's the reason. I mean, these, these casks. We sell them. We sell them in England. You can't ship these things across the Atlantic Ocean. How about if I we mean, provide the casks? <laughs> even if we provi- we we do provide. The when casks. I say we, I mean by America. Well, I can- um, and by America, I mean Union. <laughs> <laughs> union Car- beer. Cask, cask beer done the traditional way, as we do it, has a shelf life of probably about a week after it. Um, after it's brewed Yeah but we after have some casks coming over here I know the Shelton Brothers brings some casks And I know that the United Nether Importer Brings yeah, some that, casks I mean that's fantastic and They're, all, they're well, fine I'm really glad that you appreciate You know that's that's great for you that you No have pressure cast beer. <laughs> But I mean that's I mean to be to be brutally honest The way that we do things at Sam Smith Is that we are very very traditional and, mm-hmm. and that's that's what our what, what we believe our success is based on is sticking to our sticking to what well, we I mean, do but best if ipa was made to be sent to india and that's before airplanes and big steamships i mean if you really want to be traditional you can like you know we can get a donkey cart to come around south of africa or whatever <laughs> on a tramp steamer and bring it over but i think i think it's time for samuel yeah. adam samuel well, adam, sorry samuel smiths <laughs> to be Available in cask occasionally for special events in in New York. Not, yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the beers in England. I mean, uh, most of the breweries, the old old school English ale breweries, would make a barley wine, but it wasn't. They weren't proud of them. It was something that they kept under the shelf, and it was something that like the old guy with yeah. a really greasy red woolly cap in the corner yeah. would get a little glass and it was like he would get a little bottle of it. It was about six ounces, and he poured into his ale. Yeah, because no nobody would sit there and pound 
right. barley wine like we do here in America. Right. Yeah. And that barley wine that he was pouring into it his ale. It was fortification, yeah. Right. His ale yeah. was about 3.5%. It was a yeah. session beer. And the barley wine back in the day was probably about 6%, 6.5%. Right, right. And, and he didn't want to be seen drinking that because... Only old drunks drank barley wine, but that's a whole old, old profile. Little nip, yeah, yeah. And now, so he would do. He would he would dip that little glass into into his into his ale, and he would drink that. He'd sip that and quietly have a nice day. <laughs> Can't wait to be old. <laughs> <laughs>